Why don't we go ahead and begin with a prayer? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. So, yeah, sorry we started late. Thank you all for coming. For those who are going through the RCIA process, uh, please uh, make sure that you sign in. Um, and of course, we'll have our little meeting afterwards. So, we are on our fourth class in our journey through the Catholic faith. I think, as I said last time, I had a little bit of a struggle deciding whether to put this class as the third class or the third class as the fourth class. Because remember last week we talked about creation, evolution, as it is in science and as it is in scripture, and then sort of ended on revelation of how God reveals himself to man in this dialogue. But what we're going to do now is we're going to pass to sort of the central, we call place or locus of revelation, and that is sacred scripture. Now, we've looked at sacred scripture. We looked at the Bible last week. Um, we talked about the first three chapters of Genesis and talked a little bit about interpretation, the literal meaning of scripture, and we're going to discuss a lot more of that today. And so we're going to, I guess, focus this whole entire time on the Bible. And we're going to, of course, refer to the Bible a lot during the course of our time together. But as I sort of mentioned last week, the, the scripture, you could take a whole semester on this. You could actually take two or three semesters, Old Testament, New Testament, uh, Pauline letters, the prophets. And when we studied scripture, we had several classes that we took to really get deep into and understand the meaning of scripture. So what I'm doing, though, today is instead of, let's say, sort of having more of a, a narrative an approach and looking at the different things and the themes of faith or whatever, I'm going to take almost a bullet point approach. What I did is I took the catechism, a section on the catechism and a few other things. We'll talk about particularly De Verbum, which is the Vatican II document on Revelation and Scripture. And sort of boiled it down to 12 important points. Now probably there's some more I could say or some more important points, but for me, this is the basics of not only a Catholic understanding of Scripture, but also addressing a lot of the main questions or issues that I think Catholics tend to have. I can't promise you that I will give you an answer that you will love or fully understand, but today's lesson should be a little bit easier to grasp uh, than the other ones where we got into philosophy and mythology and things like that. We all pretty much know what the Bible is, but there are often a lot of things that we don't think of. But I sort of want to begin with a quote that I mentioned, I think I mentioned last week, that the Catechism actually uh, refers to. Uh, if you want to know more, what part of the reading I'm going to sign is Catechism 101 to 141. That's the section on Scripture and Revelation. 
And in there, it gives the quote that we as Christians and as Catholics are a people of the word, not a people of the book. A people of the word, not a people of the book. And this sort of makes sense to you. Remember the word logos, which means word? Jesus is the logos, the son of God who became man and took flesh. And the book, of course, refers to the Bible. I'm not saying that we disregard the Bible, or we don't think the Bible is important. The Bible is very important. But we have a radically different concept of Scripture and how we approach Scripture than, let's say, the Jews do, or in particular, the way that uh, the Muslims do, or other religions that tend to be focused on uh, a divinely inspired book. So this is the first one. Very, very easy question, and I guess is the basis of all of it. Who wrote the Bible? Who is the author of the Bible? So who would we say? What would most people, what would most people say? God is. Well, of course, God is. That's what we call it, God's Word. It's where God speaks to us. And so that we would say that God is the author. Now, does that mean, you know, God was sitting around the Garden of Eden writing things down? Or that Jesus wrote anything down? No, we have no evidence whatsoever that Jesus wrote anything. So when we say that God is the author, we don't mean that he sat there with a pen and a paper writing things down. It's not how it works. But he is the ultimate one who inspired the human authors to write what they did. And so we could really say that God is that primary author. He's the fundamental author. But each book of the Bible, each word in the Bible, had a human author. He inspired them with the Spirit. Now we're going to get into a little bit in a few minutes what inspiration is. But we can look at the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are numerous different books in the Bible, all with numerous different authors. Now, do we know all the authors? Granted, in Pentateuch, we believe that, we believe that Moses was the author. We now know there's probably a number of different authors potentially inspired by Moses' stories. They were passed down from generation to generation. The prophets, they would have possibly written some of their writing down, although they may have had scribes who do it. And then, of course, the apostles and the evangelists writing in the New Testament. But we would say that if God is the true author, the foundational, fundamental author, the human authors are what we might be called the instrumental author, the instrumental cause. Kind of like God is the, the big hand and the human authors are the pen. But it's different. It's not just a pen that's an inanimate object. What do the human authors have that a pen doesn't? Intellect, will, memory, imagination. The Lord inspired them with the Spirit, but it doesn't mean, as we'll see, that He took control of them. It wasn't like, what do you call it? Automatic writing? You know, this sort of new-agey thing where 
all of a sudden a spirit took me over and I began writing. It's not what it is at all. They would have all had different experiences of it, but they would have been inspired. But the Lord would allow their humanity to shine through. That's so important. God, even in inspiring the human authors, respects our human freedom. Respects our human freedom. So, as, as, as I said before, and I say again, do we actually have the texts that, let's say, Isaiah might have written? Or any of Paul's first letters? No, we don't. We don't have those. We have copies of it, as we'll see. But still, we believe that those books were not written by angels. They were not written by saints in heaven. They were written by human authors. So it's proper to say, in a certain sense, that Scripture has two authors. The divine author, God, who's the ultimate author who inspires, but also have individual human authors. Easy to understand, correct? All right, that's the first point, is the authorship of who wrote the Bible. The second, though, is where it gets a bit more complicated. As I've used this word, even though God is the primary author, he inspired the individual human authors to write his word. And so inspired comes from the Latin word spirare, which means to breathe. And so here it is, the inspired. He breathed his spirit into them. He touched their intellect. He inspired their, their, his, their heart. However, it, it works. The way it does not work as I think I've said before, he did not whisper in their ear. And again, I, didn't, I should have had the TV up here, but I just haven't had time to do any of this. I'm realizing it's all the props that I want to have, I can never have. Is in, in, in Rome, there's a church called San Luigi dei Francese. And it's not really a spectacularly beautiful church. It's more beautiful than anything you find over here. But compared to Roman churches, it's not spectacular. It's the church of the French. But what's important about it, in the front left corner, there is sort of a side altar area with three very important paintings done by the artist Caravaggio. And there are three paintings, a triptych from the life of St. Matthew. The one in the middle, I'm sorry, the one on the left, the one that's the most famous, is the call of St. Matthew. The one on the right is the martyrdom of St. Matthew. And in the middle, getting this correctly, I can't remember, is Matthew writing his gospel. So Caravaggio uses the style called chiaroscuro, dark light, where there's like a lot of darkness in the background and the main characters are lit by this very bright light. And so there's Matthew, and he's got his one leg on his little bench, and he's writing his gospel with his big pen. And what they have is there's an angel whispering in his ear, counting off on his fingers. Kind of like saying, first you want to say this, then you want to say that, then you want to say this. Beautiful painting, terrible theology. Beautiful painting, terrible theology. The, the Bible, the books were not dictated to the author by an angel. This dictation theory. The Spirit inspired. God is the ultimate author, but it's not like if I go to Briley and say, Briley, I'm going to dictate a letter to you. So she's go, I'm going to go down the point, she's going to write exactly what I say and communicate it. That's not how it worked. 
but it also, if that is the way it works, doesn't really respect her human freedom. However, this is the way, for the most part, that we believe, or the Muslims believe, that the Quran was, was, was sort of written. That, that an angel or whatever spoke to Muhammad and he wrote things down word for word, which is the word of God. So there's not a lot of human interpretation. Of course, what he believed, that's what they believe, but that, of course, we would, we would disagree. So what is the experience? Like St. Paul, we believe his letters were inspired. Did Paul, like, all of a sudden feel like, whoa, i got to write something down? Not necessarily. He may have. We don't know. But I'm going to guess that probably those authors maybe didn't even realize something was going on. It wasn't necessarily like there was a charge in their body that made them write it. They may have felt inspired and the need to write something, but were they conscious or aware that, whoa, God's working through me? We really have no evidence of that. We do know that they would have had their intellect, their will, their memory. They would have been writing in a very human situation. God would have used that and inspired it. So that's one of the things we're going to talk about more, we talked about before, that there's that literal meaning of Scripture. What the author intended. And we can really sort of study that and come to understand who is there, who's the author. What is his background? How did the life of what he lived or his experience influence what he wrote? Here's a great example. Matthew. If you read the Gospel of Matthew, you are going to see a certain theme run almost all the way through Matthew. I think we may have mentioned this in a previous class. You know what that theme is? He's going to refer to it in parables. He's going to talk about it, even in the Our Father. Not the Messianic Secret, it's more Mark, but debt. debt, or payment, or money. Why would that be? The tax collector. So you could kind of say, here's Matthew writing from that perspective of being a tax collector. Money makes sense to him. And so the Lord respected that, and it allowed him to bring this in. And so he used his, his human knowledge, his experience, to be able to communicate that. John's Gospel, when we realize John's Gospel is the most spiritual and beautiful, because we believe, yes, he was the beloved of Jesus. He had that deep, intimate relationship, and as a result, his Gospel is a little bit deeper. But what other thing do we believe would have influenced John to make his Gospel much more spiritual? Hmm? Who said that? Who said Mary? Yes, correct. Well, John, remember, he took Mary into his home. If I'm John and I'm taking the Blessed Virgin Mary, we're going to be talking about who Jesus was. Mary had the greatest insight. So you could almost say, to a certain degree, John's gospel is Mary's gospel. From all those deep insights that she had communicated. So John could have taken that experience. And again, you could also say that quite possibly, you know, we could look at it. Luke wrote a lot about Mary. Well, where would Luke have heard about that? Maybe Luke would have met Mary and heard those stories. So there's a way that we can understand that. I'm looking just at the Gospels. But we can apply this to anything. The traditions of where people came from, of what they went through, of their own intellect and their will. Some were very gifted writers. Some, not so much. You know, but they were all, not everybody, all, you can look at scripture, and again, I'm not one to say 
a certain book has a better literary style than the other, but not all of it's Shakespeare. Some flows a lot better than the other. The Lord used those individuals, and they were all writing to different audiences. The audience is going to, one's writing to, Paul's writing to certain churches. Each church, granted, sort of represent the whole entire church, but they all had their own problems. They all had their own issues. John writing the book of Revelation, writing to a very specific audience. The ones in the Old Testament writing to very specific audiences for very specific purposes. And we can go to each of those books and see it, but we're taking a, a, a divine inspiration, but also a human element. Remember, I think we talked about that. The Catholic faith is not either or, it's both and. Both and. So the scriptures have both God and humans as, as authors. The human, the God does inspire that author, but the author also and uses his own intellect, his own faculties to be able to write. Does that make sense? All right, number two is good. What about number three? I'm going I'm to get a little water here. Probably should get some wine. <laughs> Maybe I'll do that for break. So, we understand these things. What, though, is or was the process for these individual books to be written and to... Uh, the individual books we've written, we're going to get to agree, we're going to look at how they all came together in the Bible. What was the process for, for imagine that this, this Bible here, that each of the books written in the Bible, let's say they're the original texts that were written. Well, how did we get to that original text? And to a great degree then, how did that original text become this? And these are questions that we often don't think about, and it's a point that I want to make that I guess is sort of crucial, and maybe it could be a 13th point, but I like either 12 or 15. I like numbers like that that are easier to remember. I'm OCD like that. Is that the Bible does not exist in a vacuum. Uh, no document exists in a vacuum. What do I mean by that? The Bible just didn't descend from heaven. And all of a sudden, the apostles grab it. Oh, hey, look, the Bible. No. There's a human and historical process that brought the Bible to us. Just like any kind of document. Let's say that you are a constitutional lawyer, unlike a lot of the people on television today. Not all of them, but a lot of them. What do you do when you say the Constitution? What is the first thing you're going to do? You're going to understand who wrote it, when they wrote it, what influenced it, the process of it being written in order to understand the text. Now, often when we study the Constitution, we just study the Constitution when you read it. But man, you need to know who John Locke was. You need to know about the Enlightenment. You need to know about philosophy. You need to know about the lives of the founding fathers. You need to be able to read the debates that went on in the Constitutional Congress. If you don't understand those things, you're not going to understand the Constitution. I mean, to a certain degree you will, but it's going to be limited. But what so often happens is people will say, the Bible's the Word of God, you've got to believe the Bible, the Bible alone. And then you ask them, can you even tell me where the Bible came from? Uh, it came from God. Okay, yes, it came from God. 
So what was the process of either the, the, the letters being written or the process of the books being put together? Very few people, particularly Catholics, can give the answer to that. And so while we believe it's the Word of God, we also want to understand that general process. So what, what is, what is the, the process, or I'm going to explain this. Again, we realize that there are certain things in Scripture that were not historical. I don't want to get into the distinction to say nothing's historical. Obviously, there are historical events. And granted, did Adam and Eve exist in the way Scripture tells us, as we've seen? No, it's a creation myth. Should you take everything literally in the sense like it actually really happened? No, you necessarily shouldn't do that. But in general, what happened was there would be an historical event. We could say it was the crossing of the Red Sea. We could say it was the, uh, the exile, Babylonian exile. We could say it's the miracle of Jesus. We could talk about uh, things that happened in the church. There's an historical event. Do we, in general, and again, different books may tell you different things, but in general, was something written down at the moment this historical event happened? Generally, no. Today, when things are happening, they're live tweeting about them. Isaiah didn't tweet what was going on. <laughs> it wasn't that. It wasn't immediate. There was an event that happened. Then, after that event, what was the next stage? So the first stage is the event. What is the next stage? Somebody would describe it to somebody. Yeah, what did people do back then? Well, they weren't watching Netflix. There's the oral tradition. Most of them couldn't write anyway. Yes, or read. So, Let's say there's this big historic event, you know, the, 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 the exile from Babylon. Well, guess what's going to happen? As the years go on, decades or even centuries, the stories are going to be told and shared, sitting around the campfire at the great feasts. Whatever it is, they're going to tell the stories. Now, you can say, maybe God is inspiring the people as they're telling the stories. I don't know. But... These stories are passed down from generation to generation, from family to family, sometimes over the course of decades, sometimes over the course of centuries. Now, I'm not denying that God could have and probably did preserve certain things through the passing on of centuries, but you all know how it works. Uh, an event happens. I witness it. Well, I have my own perception of the event but I'm gonna convey that perception of the event to someone else. Imagine, like, yesterday George Weigel spoke, or Tuesday, how many of you were there? So you go and you tell someone else that story, and it's never written down, but 300 years down the line, someone relays what happened at that, at that event. It could be a little weird. <laughs> now granted, God could have inspired everybody along the way for them, but still the events are passed on. And then you also have to understand, as we're going to look at, 
did the Jews have the same idea of history that we do? Where they're like, we are going to pass on the very specific historical facts. That's what we would do in our history books. They were not interested in that. They were interested in the forest, not the trees. How is God working to save his people through history? That was the interest, not the specific details. In fact, some of those things may have changed. They weren't very, very important. And so often, what we want is we can't see the forest or the trees. We get caught up in the details, and we forget what God is really trying to say. We try to put our mindset on what would have been the mindset then. The third stage, then, and I'm really simplifying it, would have been the written word. Now, granted, there may be certain books that are different or changed, and, you know, the Psalms, again, tell about events in the past quite often. They weren't written exactly when it happened. They're written in a different mode as a song to be sung to convey a truth. But ultimately, things are written down. They are written down often many years after. So, like, look at the, again, scholars will differ on this. They believe, or it's something I read, that the earliest Old Testament thing that was written or story probably dates back to 1200 B.C. The latest we know are the Maccabees. Maccabees written about 100 years before Jesus. Now, granted, when these different things were written, how they're connected to certain times and dates, you'd have to get into more detail. We're more specific about the New Testament. What, was the early, what do we scholars believe is the earliest thing that was written in the New Testament, and when was it written? Um, earliest thing written in the New Testament was uh, the... Uh, I was about to say, I was about to say Gospel of Matthew, but I thought... No, I'm going to most scholars say Thessalonians, probably the earliest, written about 50 A.D. The latest, some will say 2 Peter, Others will say John, John's Gospel Revelation, probably between 90 and 100 AD. And so you have a span of time. So think of it. Really nothing was put into writing until 30, 20 to 30 years after Jesus died. So uh, the teachings of Christ, so you have a circle event, the teachings of Christ, the oral tradition, the teaching of the apostles, they were essentially written down and then copied and spread about. And so this is sort of the historical tradition that goes on. Now, you can also say there's another part that comes to this is the redactions. The editors take the texts and break them down, edit them a bit, uh, take other things, other copies of the letters and put them together. Kind of like we saw in uh, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. You had those two different sources that redacted and sort of put together for the final product. Now granted, this is all very, very detailed scripture scholar stuff. But in the process, though, what do you have? You have the written word in redactions and that book process. You're going to have, no, there wasn't a Xerox machine. You know, John didn't say, oh, I wrote this, this letter down. Go, go Xerox that, and I want you to mail it to all the churches. It was handwritten. Did copiers make errors? Yes, they did. And some of the copiers potentially, you know, 
put their own ideas in, quite possibly. And, and so what happens is through this process, as I said, we don't have the original texts. We have copies of original texts. We often have numerous copies of original texts. And so what happens is the scholars will take, and there are a number of them in the Vatican, will take two or three and compare them and say, which, what, what seems to be the, the main idea? There's a whole way of doing that. So the things we have in here are often the result of a lot of scholarship of looking and comparing the various texts that we have. Um, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls, I'm sure you're familiar with that, that were the, found in the caves of Qumran was in the 40s or the 30s, I think it's 40, no, the 40s. And they found these, these again, the scriptures were often put on papyrus or parchment paper. And they found all of these different writings. Most of them, though, were copies of Old Testament books, but they were preserved and you were able to look at them. They had some other writings, too, which we'll get into a little bit later. But all we have are copies. We do not have the original inspired text. But nonetheless, we still say that the Bible is inspired. What we have, the product we have today. All right, does that make sense? That's like the, the five-minute or ten-minute version of the process of how the individual books are written. It's not the process of how uh, the Bible was put together. We're going to look into that in, in a few minutes. Do you have any questions or comments or anything? Is this all clear, Isabel? Yes, Matthew. Would anything that was copied and made a little, let's say, adjustment, would that still be considered divinely inspired? Well, no, the original text would have been divinely inspired. And again, that's the, the difficulty. That's a good question. As it passes on, could there have been changes? Yes. But regardless of the specific details, the original inspired text is not there. But the copies, we believe, what the church puts together and says, this is what's inspired. We're going to get into that. Who decides what's inspired, uh, how it's inspired, and when it's inspired? We're going to get into that. That's a, that's a good question. So one of the things that we hear all the time, we're going to revisit this at the end of our lesson, is that the Bible tells the truth. If you want to know the truth, you see those, those billboards. Know the, want to know the truth? Read the Bible. Call this toll-free number. <laughs> and we would believe that. The church believes, as Christians believe, that the Bible does tell us the truth. But here's the issue. What do we mean by truth? Now granted, that I sound like Pilate. What is truth? It's not, <laughs> not what we're trying to do here. But it's a valid question because there are a number of different types of truth. There's mathematical truth. There's historical truth. There's moral truth. There's uh, literary truth. There's, uh, whatever. There are all different types of truth and there are all different criteria to judge by. But when we talk about truth today, what do most people think of? Scientific truth and historical truth. And so what they'll do is they'll say, well, the Bible says that the sun stopped in the sky. And we know that the sun doesn't move, but the earth moves. Therefore, the Bible isn't true. 
No, you're missing the point. That's not the type of truth that the Bible is trying to communicate. Well, then you could say, well, then nothing is real in the Bible. No, there are certain things that we believe were historical. Certain things maybe aren't, and it's going to take a lot of discernment to figure that out, but it doesn't mean that the Bible is not true, nor does it mean that the Bible is a lie. We've got to understand what type of truth is the Bible trying to communicate. Well, certain things, the truth of the resurrection. Well, that's an historical truth, even though we weren't there. It takes faith to understand it. The Bible's telling us plenty of moral truths. The truths of how God works in history. That's all very, very important. But the church teaches us that the truth the Bible presents is the truth necessary for our salvation. Okay, I'm going to try to find the passage. The Bible tells us the truth or the truths that are necessary for our salvation. Now, Vatican II, again, some of you may not realize that, we're going to talk a little bit more about that over time. The church has what we call these councils where the bishops get together. And if it's a universal, what we call ecumenical council, where everyone gets together, then um, we then believe that that is the spirit working, teaching us things that are necessary for our salvation. Can I speak a truth right here? Juan, it's hot. Can we turn down that air conditioner and make sure it doesn't go back up to 74? Put it like it. Are y'all hot? Yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. Y'all tell me. Speak the truth. <laughs> Testify. I'm not here making y'all do penance. But now, y'all are complaining because it's going to be too cold in a few minutes. Uh, so, I'm trying to find... All right, here it is. This is, I'm, I'm a, I don't want to read boring stuff. So Vatican II, which happened between 63 and 65, put out a number of documents trying to bring the church into the modern world. But one of the documents that I'm going to link to is called Dei Verbum, the Word of God, which is on Revelation and on Scripture. I read, it's only 10 or 11 pages. I really suggest you reading it. So I'm going to read the paragraph 11 which sums up the last point about how God used human authors and the point that I'm trying to make about uh, truth. Those divinely revealed realities which are contained and presented in sacred scripture, this is number 11, have been committed to writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For Holy Mother Church, relying on the belief of the apostles, tradition, holds that the books of both the Old and New Testaments in their entirety with all their parts are sacred and canonical, we'll learn what that means, because written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they have God as their author and have been handed on as such to the church herself. In compromising the sacred books, God chose men, and while employed by him, they made use of the powers and abilities, so that with him, acting in them and through them, they as true authors consigned to writing everything and only those things he wanted. So again, even though they may not have been aware of it, he, they did write only the things he wanted. Here's the paragraph about truth. The truth is that Juan has not found the, the thermostat yet. <laughs> Therefore, since everything asserted by the inspired authors or sacred writers must be held to be asserted by the Holy Spirit, 
It follows that the books of Scripture must be acknowledged as teaching solidly, faithfully, and without error that truth which God wanted put into sacred writings for the sake of salvation. Okay? The truth the Bible contains, even though it contains moral truths and some historical truths and other truths that are very beautiful and important, philosophical truths, is the truth necessary for salvation. All right? And so there's no error. There's nothing in here that you're going to read that is going to take you away from salvation. However, we've got to try to understand, though, how to interpret the Bible how to understand what's written to draw those truths out. And so if you're looking for pure historical truth or scientific facts, you're not going to find it. You're going to find it, but you're kind of looking for the wrong thing. We're trying to see the truths of salvation. That Jesus died for us. The prophets spoke the word of God. Conversion from sin. These different types of things are the truths that we are looking for and that we're being guided towards. Does it make sense? All right. So as we continue to melt in here, we're going to Where is it? Well, he knows where it is. I just don't know why it's taking so long. So keeping that in mind, do you want to close the door again? That the Bible tells the truth necessary for salvation particularly how God is working through or has worked through or does work through history to save his people from sin. So the next one we're going to get into, and then we'll take a break and then come back. We now know where or how the individual books would have been written. But how do we get this? How do we get this product that we have today? The Bible as we know it. One of the words that is commonly used um, for is this word canon. Canon, of course, means something you shoot a cannonball out of, but it's not what we're talking about here. It's from a Greek word which sort of means the measuring stick. Do you hear it? No. It's the canon. The canon the collection of books that are contained in Scripture, the canon of the Bible. And so we're going to talk about the difference between the Catholic and the Protestant Bible, the 46 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament. These are all the books. And so that's what we forget. The Bible, even though we need to see it as a unity, is a library, basically. It's a collection of different books from different times written by different authors with different genres of literature. You have poems, you have songs, you have history, you have mythology, you have letters, you have gospels. All of these are put together and are inspired. This is the question that people don't think about. Who decided what books go in here? Juan, even if you turn it down, it, it didn't kick on at all. So Butcher was here today. I don't know what the problem is. I even turned the fan on. It's not working. It's a little bit cooler on this side. Maybe I should well, open the doors. Yeah, why don't you open the doors? 
I don't know. I guess we're going to have to. Maybe could you send a text to Jean and have Butcher come out tomorrow or something? Okay. I want people to die. They were just like literally here all day today, changing the, the vents. Um, so where does the Bible come from? Who decided this book is inspired in the Word of God, this book isn't? What was the process of that happening? How many of you ever thought of that? It's very rarely people don't. This is, the word, this is the word of God. Well, like, again, people, I really think some people may think it just descended from heaven. And then Jimmy Swagger got it. <laughs> no, it's not how it worked. There was an historical process where you had all of these different books and these letters that were out there and to a great degree were being used in the liturgy. And so let's look at so the early church. So you have the Old Testament. People don't know is the old, even for the Jews, the Old Testament canon, the books that was not decided at the time of Jesus. There was still some dispute and some arguing over which books would have been inspired. But what happened was is you began having the Gospels written, you have the different letters written, and you had copies of the Old Testament floating around. And the early church would take these, copy them, and share them. So if Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians, what well, was copied and shared with everybody? Because they realized, hey, this is something important. That God is speaking to, to Corinth, but in a great degree, it's speaking to all of us. And so these letters were all passed around. They were read, they were brought together in the liturgy, and they also had letters and writings that were read that maybe were not inspired. And so over time, the church came to the decision, or the early Christians came to the decision, we got to figure out what's inspired and what's not. Because there's confusion that is happening. So guess what? Human beings made this decision. It was over a, a long process of time. It probably wasn't until about the year 400 that the canon was for the first time sort of settled upon, even though a lot of the church fathers sort of disagreed, mostly on what belonged in the Old Testament, and we're going to get into that. But there was a desire to have a canon, to be able to decide. And so what happened? Did God appear in heaven and say, like from like some Monty Python skit, these are the books that you're inspired? No. What happened was, is the leaders of the church, the bishops of the church, gathered together and decided. Certainly by, and they had criteria. Certainly they prayed and they were inspired as they chose that. But they were looking, you know, do we believe the New Testament stuff goes back to the apostles? They had the belief of the church that pre-existed the canon. They had what was orthodox and what was not. And so if you found something that wasn't orthodox or you couldn't trace back to the earliest days of the church, well, then that was thrown out. And so they used their human powers of discernment to be able to figure out what the canon was. Two councils, Carthage and Hippo, probably around 399 to 400, were the ones that sort of solidified the canon. Now, granted, for Catholics, it doesn't become really, really solid at the Council of Trent much later. 
And so, what was the process? You had the writings, you had them floating around, the bishops, inspired by the Holy Spirit, came together and said, this is, this is of apostolic origin, this is not. This is inspired, this is not. And as I said, certain things were thrown out. Now, a lot of times you're going to hear about these Gnostic Gospels, uh, the hidden Gospels or the hidden writings the church doesn't want you to hear. You can go pick them up at Barnes & Noble. I mean, the church is doing a pretty terrible job of, 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 of keeping them from people if you can buy it at Barnes & Noble for $5 on the discount rack, the Gnostic Gospels. A lot of these were writings that came hundreds of years or decades, decades to a century or two after Jesus, and the people could knew that because there were no references to them in the early church. And they could also tell there were certain errors in them. So one of the Gospels that the Gnostic Gospels or the Hidden Gospels is the Gospel of Thomas. There, again, there were more than just four Gospels floating around. There was the Gospel of Pilate, the Gospel of James. But one was the Gospel of Thomas, and they had all these little sayings of Jesus. A lot of them seemed to be directly copied out of the, the, the real Gospels. But there's one passage in there that says, in order for a woman to get to heaven, she has to become a man. Well, the early church is like, whoa, we don't believe that. Mm, we don't believe that. Why? Because they had pre-existing tradition. They had the teachings of the apostles that passed down orally. They knew what was valid and what was not valid. And so they said, we're throwing it out. And so through a process of prayer and discernment, the, the church decided that these were the books that were inspired. And so when you think of the question, which came first, the chicken or the egg? It's very clear. The church came before the Bible. There was a living faith. There was orthodoxy, which means right belief, criteria that the bishops of the church used to decide what books were in the canon and what were inspired and what were not inspired. Granted, it was a process, and that not all the early church fathers agreed. Jerome believed one thing, Augustine believed another thing. There was all kinds of disputes, which we're going to kind of get into in a second. But they ultimately settled on this, what we have today, as the canon of Scripture, as divinely inspired. So you can read those other Gnostic Gospels and letters, but is that the word of God? No. If they discovered a letter tomorrow that was St. Paul, St. Paul wrote this, and we know it's St. Paul, it still wouldn't be considered part of Scripture, not necessary for salvation. So the only truths that are necessary for salvation are the ones that are contained in here. Well, well the truths that are contained in here are necessary for salvation. There's some other truths that are not explicitly contained in Scripture that are necessary for salvation. We'll talk about that uh, in a little bit. So it's the principle of cause and effect. That even though the, 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 the God caused the effect of the authors to write the individual books, the church was inspired, the bishops of the early church were inspired to put as the cause to put together the effect, which is this. So in a great sense, you can't say the Bible is more important than the church. You've got to see both of them working together. It's the horse and the rider. This may be the horse, the, the rider is the church, the magisterium is the guiding. That's where it came from. 
you can read online plenty of much more detailed things. But it's so important whenever I try to talk to people who are not Catholic, or the Catholics who may be a little bit ignorant of certain things, how important it is to understand the Bible cannot be seen in a vacuum. You can see it in context to fully understand it. All right? So we're going to pause for maybe five or ten minutes and then come back and then decide whether we're staying here or going in the sauna or going somewhere else. So we kind of just finished covering, I guess, probably one of the, the most important points of where the Bible came from. Uh, and how it's put together, that historical process. Like I said, you can go online and read in a lot more detail. But that sort of brings the question that a lot of people have, what is the difference between the Catholic Bible and the Protestant Bible? A lot of times I see people come, Father, look, I got this, this brand new Bible. And I look at it and it's the Protestant Bible. Not that the Protestant Bible is evil or something like that. It's just not the same as the Catholic Bible. It is missing a few books. And I'm gonna do my best to explain what this process is. Catholics and Protestants both agree that there are 27 books of the New Testament. But the real sort of split, the decisive split, comes with the Old Testament and with Martin Luther. Martin Luther was the one, sort of the founder of the Protestant Reformation, he had some books in the New Testament that he didn't think like Jude and James were as inspired, although he kept them in there, there was some dispute. But it was the books, and there are seven of them. Yeah, seven of them. The Protestant Old Testament has 39 books, while the Catholic Bible has 46. Why is that? And the reason is because of the fact that the Jewish canon was not set at the time of Jesus. In fact, there were two separate Jewish canons that were floating around at the time of Jesus. The first is what we call the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible, which is basically the 39 books, more or less, that the Protestants recognize. They were all written in Hebrew that the Jews recognize. But you also got to remember that before the time of Christ, there was something called the diaspora. The diaspora is the sending out. That there was a period of time, I can't remember the dates off the top of my head, when the Jews kind of left and kind of got tied in with some of the Greeks and Greek culture. So, there was a version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Septuagint, because they believed there were 70 different authors who translated the Old Testament into Greek. And that Greek Old Testament was the one that had 46 books. 46 books. The ones that were not contained, I have the list here, Tobit, Judith, Wisdom, Sirach, or Ecclesiasticus, 1 and 2 Maccabees, Baruch, and parts of Daniel and Esther. Big reason is that some of those were actually sort of written in Greek. But what happened, the question was, is that Luther, wanting to be more original and more like the early church, he opted for the Jewish Hebrew Bible. 
Now, some will argue that part of the reason is is that some of the books like Maccabees, which really were clear about praying for the dead and gave arguments for purgatory, he didn't want those in there. Uh, and so as a result, he chose uh, that so he didn't deal with the books he disagreed with. But the truth is scholarship has shown that quite often when the gospel writers or the early people in the church read or quoted scripture, the Old Testament, they quoted the Septuagint. And so the Septuagint, the Greek version, is the one that actually the early church referred to in the Old Testament. And so that's why we have those extra books. But it wasn't officially decided until the Council of Trent, and we're going to again talk more about ecumenical councils, in the 16th century. Because Luther was going and saying, no, there's only 39 books, and then the Catholic Church was saying there are 46, and they were fighting and disputing, but it was the Ecumenical Council of Trent that was the response to the Protestant Reformation that said, no, it is the Septuagint. That's the one that we are going, that was inspired, uh, and that's the one that we're going to recognize, even though it was translated into Latin and what we call the Vulgate. These are the different translations. And so it was really, for Catholics at least, the, the final canon wasn't decided until the 16th century. Over 1,500 years after Jesus died and ascended into heaven. And so this is why we have those extra books. You can often get a Protestant Bible and still see the extra books, but they're often called the Apocrypha, are the deuterocanonical books. They're still there, they're just not considered inspired. Does it make sense if I explain that to y'all? That is the difference between the Catholic Bible and the Protestant Bible. It goes back to which Old Testament, the Greek Septuagint or the Hebrew uh, would be accepted. But bringing up this idea of the Greek and the fact that the Old Testament, the Hebrew would have been translated in Greek, it brings up my next point, number seven, of the issue of translations. People always come up, what Bible should I read? And this is, what Bible should I read? Well, the original scriptures were written both in Hebrew and in Greek. But because the church didn't think everybody should learn Hebrew and Greek, even though some people do, the translation of the original text into different languages as the gospel spread, as the church grew, happened. And so now you have the Bible in every imaginable language. The Bible did different translations. Some, of course, in the different languages are translated or approved by the church. For the Catholic, the, the Catholics for the early days, it was the Vulgate translation that was recognized. The first sort of famous English translation is what? Well, the most famous English translation is what? King James, which is still around today in 1611. The King James Version, the Protestant translation, granted there can be arguments of what's the proper, best word to translate, how can this be translated. When you translate something, you can never get the meaning of the original language. But what about Catholics? There are a number of different Catholic translations. The two most famous ones, and I would encourage you if you buy a Bible, the one is the New American Bible, which is a very, very good translation. Well, a good translation. Some parts are better than others. I'm not a Greek or scholar, just what I know. It's a Catholic edition. And there's also called the Revised Standard Version. 
the RSV. That's the one that I think a lot of people, we read the New American at Mass, but the RSV, Catholic edition, because the RSV non-Catholic edition that doesn't have the, the, the Old Testament books that we do, uh, is one that is often preferred. Again, I can't tell you what translation is better than the other. You have all kinds of different translations. One of the most famous English translations for Catholics is what? Anybody know the famous Catholic English translation? The Douay Reims. But, and the Douay Reims is a beautiful language, everyone loves it, but here's the issue. It's in English, but it's a translation of the Vulgate, which is the Latin, which is a translation of the Greek and the Hebrew. So you're seeing it filtered a number of different times. One of the, the, the greatest translations, at least from what I can remember when I was in school, is La Bible Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Bible. Many of you may have seen that. It was done by L'Ecole Biblique. Uh, but the problem is, it was done from a really good translation of the Hebrew and the Greek, but into French. So if you see the Jerusalem Bible, and what is it? It's the Jerusalem Bible in French translated English. Still recognized as a valid translation, but you're gonna lose something in the meaning. I could get into the ideas of translations and why certain things are translated certain ways and certain things are not translated other ways. That is a whole big discussion. There was a big thing in the 80s and 90s of inclusive language and not wanting to refer to God as he and how certain words are translated. Are they more precise than others? I'm not going to get into that, but I think as a Catholic, if you stick with the New American Bible or the Revised Standard Version, it's, it's good. The Catholic edition, otherwise you're going to be missing some, some books. Number eight. We're going to see a lot more of this later on. Even though all of these books are separate, written at different times by different authors, and the Old Testament canon is separate from the New Testament canon, there is a unity to Scripture. And this is a part, important, very, very important part, is that as much as you can study each individual book, you can study the Old Testament or the New Testament, as Catholics, we approach the Bible, the canon as a whole. There's not a separate God of the Old Testament and a separate God of the New Testament, even though that's one of the early heresies of the church. We'll talk a little bit about that uh, at our next lesson. And we don't have class next week because it's fall break. We'll come back the week after that. But it's important to see the unity of the two, that the Old Testament points to the New Testament, and that we can get into our historical critical studies, but we really want to look at the spiritual meaning. And the way that Catholics and Protestants who have done it is by seeing what we call typologies. So you read the Bible as a whole, you just don't pull a phrase out and say, well, this is obviously what the Bible meant. That's called proof texting. We don't do that. You take the passage and you see within the whole of Scripture and, of course, the whole of tradition. And so the typologies, the way we see it, and this is a spiritual way of looking at the Bible, is how things in the Old Testament foreshadow things in the New Testament. And so the way you could look at it, Adam and Eve in the garden, the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil. What is that? How is that fulfilled? Mary is the new Eve, Jesus is the new Adam, on the cross. From his side comes the fountain of light. 
Moses crossing the Red Sea. What is that? That is the symbol of passing from death to life, a symbol of baptism. So is the flood. The manna in the desert foreshadows the Eucharist. The 12 tribes of Israel foreshadow the tw- types of the 12 apostles. The Ark of the Covenant is a type of Mary who kept Jesus the word in her womb. And so this is the way that the church fathers really read scripture. Looking at the Old Testament, not so much focusing on, well, did this happen or that happen, but seeing it as a whole of how Christ fulfills the things of the Old Testament. To be able to see how they point to the New Testament. Does that make sense to y'all? So it's a real challenge that we have to be able to read it, not only as the individual books, as Old and New Testament, but also as the whole. If I didn't have to go try to figure out what's wrong with the air conditioner or make a phone call, I'd have taken a picture that I have, but I'll try to post it on the Facebook page. In the cathedral in Autun, in Italy, in the great Romanesque cathedrals, at the top of the, the, the pillars, they have these different images. The biblical images are just sort of symbolic images. And one of my favorite, I have a copy of it, is it's Moses. And Moses is pouring a sack of grain into a mill. And a mi- the mill, if you look at it, it's interesting, it's shaped as a cross. And at the bottom, Paul is, has a bag and he's collecting the wheat. What do you think that symbolizes? Moses in the Old Testament passes through the, 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 the grain and it goes to the mill, which is Jesus, and it comes out as that ground flour. Paul collects it. And so that's how, through Christ, we understand the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. There's the unity of the canon. I've always said that was a very, very beautiful image. Now, what do we do, number nine, when it comes to the interpretation of Scripture? Now, if we go back to Dei Verbum, and I'll have that... Oh, y'all, we wanna, we're going somewhere else. Please don't come in here. Thank you. We go back to Dei Verbum, number 12, and what does the, the church tell us? Is the most important thing, if we're going to interpret, that we've got to see the literal meaning. What the authors intended when they wrote the passage. So here, I'm going to read part of it. However, since God speaks in sacred scripture through men in human fashion, the interpreter of sacred scripture, in order to see clearly what God wanted to communicate to us, should carefully investigate what meaning the sacred writers really intended and what God wanted to manifest by means of their words. To search out the intention of the sacred writers, attention should be given, among other things, to literary forms. So if we look at the literal meaning, but the type of form, the genre was written. We talked about these things. Was it a myth? Was it a poem? And, and we interpret it that way. What was the author trying to say? But the Catechism lays out for us three important criteria for understanding and interpreting the Bible. And, and can an individual interpret the Bible? Yes, you can take it and read it. But ultimately, you're going to have to use these criteria. The first is the unity of all Scripture. You can't just pull one passage out. You've got to see it in relationship to the whole, New Testament and Old Testament. 
The second, though, very important, you have to read it within the living tradition of the whole church. Not only did the Bible come from the tradition of the church, it exists within that tradition. So if I all of a sudden read the passage where, you know, Jesus is on uh, Mount Tabor and uh, uh, Moses and Elijah appear to him, and I think, well, I read the Bible, the way it appears to me is that Moses and Elijah are part of the Trinity. <laughs> That's not proper. I need to read it within the context of the entire church, of how the church has interpreted it, within those guidelines. Now, the church hasn't necessarily said what each specific passage means. We have to read it within tradition. You can't take it in the vacuum. The third is what we call the analogy of the faith. And that basically is how the different truths of the faith are all sort of connected. That we got to understand the truth is symphonic in a way. That different things connect to and mean other things. Um, it's a little bit more difficult for me to explain. I'm not going to get into it too much. But the basic key is unity. You can't pull one passage out. You've got to see what the tradition of the teaching of the church and the traditions of interpretation of the church. And that basically, the ultimate interpreter is not going to be me or you, but it's going to be the church. That even though the Bible is revelation, God reveals himself, we have to see it within the context of the tradition of the church and what we call the magisterium. The magisterium comes from the Latin magister, which means teacher. And so it's the teaching authority of the church, the pope and the bishops, the tradition of the church taught through official documents and through the teaching of the popes and the bishops. And so you've got to see it within all of that. So the church is taught, well, this is what this passage means, or this is what the Eucharist is. I can't read the Bible and privately come up with my own interpretation. I've got to see it in the unity of the whole. And realize that quite often, I'm not going to get it. My mind is limited. One of my favorite passages, and I love preaching about it during Easter, it's in the Acts of the Apostles, when the eunuch is riding in his little car and he's reading from the book of Isaiah. And Philip, the deacon, is inspired to go and say, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says, how can I understand it unless someone explains it to me? And so what Philip does is he says, let me explain how Isaiah points to Jesus. Maybe in a certain sense, like Jesus explained the scriptures uh, to the, the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And, they, and he understood it. And then he was baptized. We need that so often things are difficult in the Bible. We need the church, the traditions, the fathers of the church, the magisterium, the catechism to help us understand it. That's one of the real problems when you see these fundamentalist churches, these Bible churches pop up. You drive around like up in northern Louisiana, the, the, the first Baptist church of St. Philip of the Word of God, the True Vine Ministries. What, what happens there? you got a bunch of Lone Rangers. And they're taking the Bible and they're interpreting it as they want. They're taking it in a vacuum. Now granted, maybe what they say is true about the scripture. But you hit a hundred different Protestant churches and guess what? You're going to have a hundred different interpretations. It doesn't mean that we can't read the Bible as individuals 
And yeah, I can read scripture and get a new insight, or I can see how it relates to my life. But if what I read contradicts the tradition of the church, the teaching of the church, then we have a problem. So just remember that the magisterium of the church, the teaching authority is so important. It's not there to, to, to repress us, but to help us to understand the scripture better. Now when we read scripture, the church teaches that there are different senses of scripture different ways of reading it. The first is literal, what the author intended. This is, we're looking at number 10. But then there's the spiritual. And the spiritual, the catechism divides as three different parts. Allegorical, which is what we talked about, how the Old Testament points to the New Testament. The moral teachings, the moral sense, what do the different stories teach us about how we should act. And then the third sense is called the anagogical which is understanding it in light of heaven, of what does the Bible teach us about heaven and how we can get to heaven, the true purpose of scripture. And so we can take all these different senses and interpret this one book. But what we don't see, or what is contrary to what we believe, is a fundamentalist approach. Fundamentalism is basically you take every single thing literally in the Bible. The church has never taught that. We have a much more complex vision, not only of inspiration, but of how we ought to interpret the scriptures by looking at these different senses, by drawing out these different truths. One of the, the passages that I'm going to put, or the readings I'm going to put online, is about what we call patristic exegesis. Exegesis. Oh, all right, I'm going to make sure I spell this correctly as a word. We're going to get to it a little bit later on. Is, what do do with it? Exegesis, it means basically taking meaning out of. How did I do that? I lost that sheet of paper. How did I lose that sheet of paper? No, E-X-E-G-E-S-I-X. -E -E Exegesis is to take meaning out of. The way the church fathers did is, again, it goes back to this idea of grain. You take the grain and as you pray and you meditate on it, you grind the grain down. And then you put it in the oven, and that's the church's teaching. And then it builds up the bread, the heat that helps to give life, the spirit, and then we're able to digest it. It's a process. And so that's how we take scripture, and we pray over it, and we allow it to enter into our lives. Number 11, and this is, again, one of the more important ones. How many of y'all have heard the phrase sola scriptura? In the Bible alone. Many of our fundamentalist Protestant brothers and sisters, because they don't understand where the Bible came from, they don't understand inspiration properly, is their teaching is, these are the fundamentals, the Bible fundamentals. Sola scriptura, the Bible alone. This is the only measure for truth, nothing else. You Catholics are devil worshippers. Y'all wrong. Y'all believe in Virgin Mary and worshiping statues is not in the Bible. That's what you often will hear in the Sola Scriptura, the fundamentalists. How do Catholics approach that? Well, first of all, we've already seen that we're not fundamentalists, that we want to be able to interpret it within the teaching of the church and the tradition of the church. But there's a fundamental logical problem with Sola Scriptura. I'm going to give you this argument, and for me, it is essential. 
I've preached about it before, but it's something that I want you all to walk away from understanding. We Catholics and Protestants both agree that there are 27 books in the New Testament. 27 books. We agree on that. Old Testament, as you've seen, not necessarily. 27 books in the New Testament. And we believe these are inspired by God. We believe they contain the truths necessary for salvation, and nothing should be added or removed. Nothing should be added or removed. We, we, we're in complete agreement on this. But the Protestants believe Sola Scriptura. Not all the Protestants, but a lot of them. Sola Scriptura, fundamentalists. That nothing contained, does not contain the Bible, should be believed or is necessary to be believed. So Catholics' ideas of Mary or purgatory, they will say are not contained in Scripture, therefore not necessary to believe. And so if I encounter one like this, and this is where I tell from about five years back, Bible preacher man who came condemning everybody, and whenever Bible preacher man comes, he's a fundamentalist preacher with the sandwich boards listing all the different people going to hell. Catholics are on there. That's how they are. And everybody will come get Father, come talk to Bible Preacher Man. And he's there round and raving. And, and the last time I said, I got a question for you, Bible Preacher Man. But how many books are in the New Testament? 27. I said, well, I agree with you on that. I said, Do you also believe the Bible is the sole measure of truth? Absolute Bible, you Catholics are going to hell because you believe in the assumption of Mary and worshiping statues. I said, All right, whatever. I said, and you believe nothing should be added or removed from the New Testament? Absolutely. I said, then tell me where in the Bible is the list of the 27 books of the New Testament saying that these are the inspired books? Where? Well, the table of contents, I said, that's not considered the Bible. Show me where Paul says these are the 27 books, or Jesus says these are the 27 books. And then he started stuttering. Well, I don't know. I said, you don't know because it's not in there. It's not. But yet you believe it's necessary for salvation to believe that the 27 books are inspired. Therefore, you believe at least one thing that is necessary for salvation that's not explicitly with Canadian scripture. Well, his jaw dropped and the whole crowd started going, oh, bro. <laughs> Got it. And I wasn't trying to do that. I dropped the mic. <laughs> but it's true. He, he was... He was wrong. And I wasn't trying to do this to shame him, but this is the fact. If you believe the 27 books of the New Testament are inspired and you cannot add or remove them, well then guess what? Who decided those 27 books? Paul didn't write about it. It's not in the book of Revelation. It comes from the Catholic Church. And so if there's at least one thing that is important, truth, and necessary for salvation that's not explicitly contained in Scripture, then there can be other things. Yes, Mark. The writings of the letters of the saints are important, but they're not considered biblical or inspired. They're good, but they're not necessary for salvation. They contain truths, but they are often interpretations. They're not, they're not canonical. I think you came in late, so you missed that, that part. Oh, no, no problem. Look, I recorded it. You can listen to it. And so the thing is, is though, you know, tied to this, this idea that you have to have the Bible, soul scripture alone. It goes back to what we talked about. Remember, the Bible, as we know it, wasn't really put together, the canon, until about 400. 
wasn't in the 1500s that it was a printing press, and it wasn't until last century that a majority of people in the world could read. It just wasn't. So if you had to have the Bible for the truth, then guess what? People for like 1900 years were probably damned. You know, there was a tradition based in Scripture, inspired by Scripture, but think of the people who couldn't read, who still can't read, who can still know the gospel and live it. The truths that they know should be rooted in Scripture, but the Bible has to be seen along with tradition. It can't be seen alone. I mean, really, do you realize how blessed we are to be able to have a printing press? And now with the internet, on the phone, I can read whatever Bible passage I want. That's very, very unique. And so this idea of sola scriptura was not existent in the beginning of the church. It didn't come until much later, after the printing press, and really, because even, even Luther didn't believe in that, really much later, when people became more literate and were able to be able to read. Does that make sense? Sometimes it's a later development of scripture. And so finally, I want to talk about the Bible and the life of the church, and the life of Christians. What, what role does scripture play? We can understand it all we want. The first and most important is prayer. It is the word of God. And the Lord can and does speak to us through scripture. That, that, I, that idea I gave you earlier, that meditating on scripture, grinding the grain so that you can produce the flour to build the bread that sustains. We're going to look more at this when we talk about prayer, but we call it Lexio Divina, the, 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 the sacred reading, where you take like a passage from the gospel, and you read it, or you pray for the Holy Spirit, and you read it, and then you meditate on it, and you read it again, and see what jumps out at you, a word or a phrase. And it's not so much, there's an intellectual engagement, but it's an engagement of the heart. Then maybe after 15 minutes of meditating on it, you come out with a truth or a couple of truths that are relevant for your life. Now again, if you come up with the truth that you can go murder people, that's not, you're not doing it right. But you allow the scripture to speak to you. I normally say when people want to start praying with scripture, where do we begin? I don't advocate beginning at the beginning and reading to the end. The number of different sort of scripture plans you can read. I say stick with the gospels and stick with the readings of the day. And that gets to the next point, the liturgy. And then our, our, whether it be the prayer of the church, which is the liturgy of the hours, we pray the psalms throughout the day, priests and religious do, like people can too, or the readings you hear at Mass. And that's what I, I do, is the gospel of the readings of the day. You're going to read throughout the course of three years, if you go to daily Mass, 90% of the Bible. The 10% you don't read are the real fun, exciting parts where people are getting eviscerated and dirty stuff's going on. It's mostly the Old Testament, but you don't get to read those fun parts. You gotta go figure that out yourself. Uh, but that's the way, the, the scripture's everywhere. In fact, the mass, when you study it, almost every part of the mass connects to scripture in some way, shape, or form. And so this idea that Catholics don't pay attention to scripture, it's in everything we do, or that Catholics we're told not to read scripture. That's ridiculous. We're never told not to read scripture. Most Catholics couldn't read scripture because A, you didn't have the printed Bible. B, people were illiterate. And so it was the church and the priests who often were more educated, not all the time, and who had access to scripture passages and books 
were able to read and interpret. But now, because you're so literate and educated, you can do that like Sio Divina. And the liturgy presents those passages. And little bite-sized nuggets, which really, I just advocate, meditate on the gospel of the day. That's, that's all you really need to do. It makes it, instead of trying to digest too much. And then, of course, if you study theology, you know, as we did in seminary, some of you may take theology classes, it's going to be rooted in scripture. You're going to look at what, what scripture says about the church or the Eucharist or about holiness or about whatever it is. It's the soul of theology, as they will say in your seminary days. You can't really study theology without scripture. Now, granted, some theologians refer to it much more than others. Uh, but still, everything in theology is going to be rooted there. But ultimately, it is where we encounter Jesus. We encounter Jesus in a number of different places, but we encounter him in the Word. The sacrament too, the church, our brothers and sisters, but we encounter Jesus in the Word of God. And that's why we, we call it the Holy Bible. It's sacred. Bibles are often blessed. We don't just take a Bible and throw it away. If it's a blessed book, it's the Word of God. You burn it, you bury it, just like you would another sacred item, and you consider it holy. Just because it doesn't mean you can't mark it up and write in your Bible, that's all good. I think you understand that. Uh, but what I presented to you is a very brief overview of the Catholic understanding of Scripture. Again, I'm going to try, we have our retreat this weekend, so it may not be Monday, I need to catch up. I did put stuff already for the first two lessons on our webpage, the blog, ragingcagingcatholics.org slash credo. You have videos and articles, and you can do whatever you want, but I'm going to try to catch up next week uh, with the last two lessons. So, that's wrapping it up, everything you've always wanted to know about the Bible, afraid to ask. The second part being more pleasant because we weren't feeling like we're in purgatory. Uh, we'll close the glory be and then allow some question time. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. It was the beginning, is now, and ever shall be. Lord without end. Amen.